So I just get to slide over here this morning. That's kind of fun. All right, uh, as you can tell, I'm not Pastor Danny. He is still in uh, Thailand with his family, and uh, we had a chance to pray for them and hear a little bit about what is going on in our, our World Missions organization. Um, so we obviously want to keep the Bronson family and all our missionaries in our prayers uh, this week as they continue to meet for some refreshment and encouragement together. Um, but today, to get started, I'm going to try something that I haven't done before, and I'm going to invite any kids who are here to come up front. All right? So, and I'm going to say the definition of kids this morning is like 65 and younger, right? So feel free. Um, I need my notes. I'm not quite as good as Pastor Danny. So, all right. Hey, yes, good. We've got four. All right, we're getting five kids. This is good. Okay. I warned him he may be a ringer this morning if I need. All right, so I got a couple of questions for you guys this morning. All right, the first one is, do you guys know what a king is? How would you define a king, Penny? Yeah, a lot of money and rules over a kingdom, right? And God. Did you look ahead in our message today? Because that's a really good answer on the second part, right? So king, a king rules, right? They, have, they, they rule something. Maybe a country, maybe a nation, maybe a land, right? Can you guys think of any famous kings? Jesus. Jesus, good. Again, we're going to go there. What? Henry II. Henry II. What, you don't know who that is? Oh, Louis II. Okay, I don't even know who Louis II is. King David? Yes, good. I was hoping we'd hear him, right? That's good. All right, so we know what a king does. We know a couple of famous kings, right? Kings oftentimes also decide what's right and wrong, right? And who maybe gets punished or not, and they enforce the laws in the land, right? And today is actually a special Sunday in the church year. It's called Christ the King Sunday, right? Penny already told us, like, Jesus is, is king. He's the ultimate king. And we're going to hear about that in our message today. All right, that Jesus is king. And he's the king of the whole world, every nation. He created everything. We heard some of that in our music this morning, but he's also king of us individually. Right? So I've got a little picture of a king to hand out for those of you who want to you know, take some time to color during the service. Here you go. Um, so listen for some words about how Jesus is a king this morning. All right? All right, that didn't go too bad. That's good. <laughs> uh, so as I said, today, uh, let me open us in prayer, and then we'll get into our, in our sermon this morning. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for a chance to meet. Um, we thank you that uh, we had a chance to hopefully have a break and take some time for Thanksgiving this week uh, with family or friends or individually, uh, just to reflect on the, the gracious things that you have given us and provided us with. We ask that you would uh, speak to us through your word this morning uh, and that you would just help us to understand better and again who you are as our king and how you want us to respond to that. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So as I mentioned, today is the last Sunday in the church calendar year. Uh, we've talked about that before. So this is often in many organizations, synods, denominations called Christ the King Sunday. Not everybody follows this uh, idea of Christ the King Sunday, um, but it is the last Sunday of the church year, and tra traditionally we talk about how Jesus is king, and we talk about 
the coming judgment of the world that, that Jesus will be bringing in. Um, and we have a chance to look forward to this coming return that, that Jesus is bringing us. It's actually a pretty new addition, the idea of Christ the King Sunday to the church here. It was Pope Pius XI in 1923 that instituted this as part of the church calendar. And there's a whole interesting history behind that that I'm not going to go into because it would end up taking more time on the history of that than, uh, than our message. And we actually want to spend more time talking about Christ today. But the idea of Christ being king, while though although Christ the King Sunday is relatively new, the idea of Christ as king is not new. And there was a, uh, a quote that Cyril of Alexandria wrote, so he was the bishop of Alexandria in the 400s, which was a very, very important bishop in Christian history uh, at the time. And so he wrote the following about Christ's kingship. Christ has dominion over all creatures, and it's a dominion not seized by violence nor usurped but it is by his essence and nature. His kingship is founded upon the hypostatic union. I'm going to pause there to define that for us. Right? So the hypostatic union of Christ, it's the merging of Christ's two natures. Christ is simultaneously human and divine. And that's the hypostatic union. So we've learned something this morning already. Right? So it's the merging of Christ's natures. This merging is what his kingship is founded on. From this it follows not only that Christ is to be adored by angels and men, but that to him as man angels but to him as man angels and men are subject and must recognize his empire. By reason of the hypostatic union, Christ has power over all creatures. So the idea that Christ is king has been in Christian history for from the beginning, right? And it's something we're going to break down and study, and it's something that our text is going to get into today as well. We're going to continue in Matthew chapter 25, and we've been in that for a couple of weeks. Pastor Mark talked to us a little bit last week in the earlier parts of chapter 25. So in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is bringing the message to his disciples as they've been asking him some questions about the temple being destroyed. And he's started his discussion with them, talking about the the coming destruction of the temple, when that's going to happen, and he's transitioned that into his coming return as well. And there's a lot of themes in chapter 24 and 25 about being ready for Christ's return is is really important. There's a couple of parables in there that are fairly well known. Pastor Mark had a chance to talk to us last week about the parable of the talents and how God has entrusted us as people with fulfilling his plans and purposes for all creation and how God wants us to use our gifts that, that he's given us, that he wants us to use these gifts to serve Christ and to grow the kingdom. And we use these gifts as a result of our thankfulness for understanding what God has done. And our text today will continue this theme as we finish this section of Matthew in chapter 25, and it's sort of the last narrative section that Jesus is really teaching in the book of Matthew uh, before his um, crucifixion. So if you'd stand and join with me, we're going to read Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of me's, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right, you may be seated. So for some of us, this may be a somewhat familiar passage if you've grown up in the church. Uh, It's often referred to, maybe has a heading in your Bible that says the final judgment or possibly the sheep and the goats. Um, And in contrast to the previous sections in 24 and 25, Jesus has transitioned from using parables to talk to the disciples to now using a direct vision of things to come. It's, It's a prophecy that Jesus is giving in many ways. For those of us who are raised in the church and maybe understand our theology, we clearly learn a couple of things, right? And I was happy to hear some of the kids articulating some of those things. And one of those things is that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. We clearly understand that. We teach this, we teach that we are sinners, and that our good works that we do do nothing to earn us righteousness or credit with God. And our righteousness is complete, and it's complete through the work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and being raised from the dead for our sin. And I hope we all understand that. But on initial reading of this passage, we don't necessarily see all of that. We see Jesus making this division of all the nations and crediting some for their works and others for not doing their works. So isn't that the opposite of what we spend most of our time teaching? Um, Is this text telling us that Jesus proclaims eternal judgment to us based on our works? Isn't that the opposite of what we understand? Is this passage telling us, as one podcaster talked to me, that talked in this text, that the Protestants got it wrong? Are we not really saved by grace, but by works? Sola fide? Just kidding? Is that really what this text is saying to us? Is this why Pastor Danny went to Thailand, so he didn't have to talk about this text, because it's challenging? The answer to that one is definitely no. Um, But the answer to all the other questions will be answered in the text as we read through it and break it down. And the answer to those things is also no. And honestly, if Pastor Danny was here, he'd be excited to preach to this about us. So it's important for us as we go through it that we pay attention to the words and understand what Jesus is saying. First, we see as we get into the text 
that this is a time in the future, because Jesus is already there. But he starts by telling us when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Right? So next week in our church calendar, we start getting into the Advent season, which is a chance to look forward to Christ's coming as both a baby and his second coming. So we'll spend uh, some weeks in our messages talking about that moving forward. But when Jesus came to us as a baby the first time, he did not come in glory. What are some of the things and the scenes that we see in how Jesus came to us? He came in humility, is often how it's referred to. He was born to an anonymous couple in a small town, in a small country that was under Roman rule. He was placed in a manger. God himself became a human. We read Philippians. We talk, Paul talks about that even of himself. Jesus humbled himself and took on the likeness of a man, became a man. This is a very humble coming that Jesus' first coming is. It's an anonymous arrival for the God who's coming to earth on a mission to save his creation. And we see the opposite in our text today. right? We see in our second coming, when Jesus comes back, he comes in glory. And how is the glory talked to in, in our text? He comes with all of his angels. It doesn't say some of his angels. It's all of his angels come with his arrival. He's seated on a glorious throne, as we would expect a king to be seated. Right? And all of the nations of the earth are brought before him to be judged. Right? So everybody recognizes now, and I have no idea how the logistics are going to work, because the earth is round and we don't all fit in one spot. Right? But we see that this is going to be a miraculous, glorious coming, that Jesus is coming and everybody's going to be there and everybody's going to understand it and we're not going to miss this one. Right? So this is the opposite of our first coming. And Jesus is coming in this glorious return. Human, all of humanity will recognize Jesus as king. Right? Some of us know that already. Penny talked about Jesus as king. Right? That was our first example that came to her mind. That's awesome to hear. Right? He is king of kings, and we get to see that on his second coming. So all the nations are seated before Jesus as he gets to his second coming. And the king divides them up as a shepherd divides up sheep and goats. And here it helps us to maybe have a little bit of understanding of how a shepherd might divide up sheep and goats. And I'm not an expert on this, but I've read books. So that's what you guys are going to hear about a little bit this morning. So in, um, in Jesus' time, shepherds often actually during the day would have their sheep and goats intermingling out in the pasture. But at the end of the night when they would bring them in, they would separate the sheep to one pen and the goats to another pen. Right? So as a shepherd is shepherd separating these sheep and goats from one another at the end of the night, Similar to that, Jesus is going to separate all of humanity into two categories, sheep and goats, those on his right, those on his left. And one of the things that's important for us to understand this, and the shepherd analogy maybe helps us understand this, is this separation is based on the identity of who we are. The sheep go here, the goats go here. It's not those who act like sheep go here and those who act like goats go here. It's not those who follow the behavior of the sheep, right? You go here, oh, you look like you're following a goatish behavior, you go here, right? You are a sheep, so you go here. It's, it's our identity that is what Christ is using on the, as our separation. 
He divides people of the world up into two categories based on who they are. So then that begs our next question for us is who are they? Who are we? And so let's listen to the words that Jesus uses to describe who we are in this judgment at the end of time. In verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And we're going to stop there because that is how Jesus is describing the sheep, those on his right. If you are a sheep, if you are on the right hand of Jesus at the end of time, you are blessed by his father. And you will inherit a kingdom. That is who you are. Right? As we will keep reading, this inheritance and this blessing is not due to the actions that we undertake. We'll just keep going. I'll talk loud. It's not due to the actions that we've taken in our lives. It's because of who we are and the identity that we have. Right? And the idea of inheritance is really helpful in this understanding of who we are. Right? An inheritance is something that you receive most typically from a parent. Right? In that time, if you were the eldest born, you would inherit the estate. Tobias smiles at me because he's my eldest born. I'm the eldest born of my parents, so I would do the same if my brothers were here. Um, the oldest inherits the stuff from mom and dad. Right? The children inherit stuff. Right? You inherit things because of the relationship that you have. Likewise, the sheep, those of us on the right, we inherit the kingdom because of who we are in Christ. Christ has made us heirs. He has brought us into God's family. And that is why we are separated on the right, as we are believers. It's not something we earn as a wage. We don't spend our lives working hard enough to earn our inheritance. That's what we do when we go to work and we get paid for that. An inheritance is a gift. We don't earn it. We are given it. So we see that this judgment takes place because of the identity that the Father has with those who are being judged. The judged receive an inheritance. It's talked about as being a kingdom, which... Have you thought about that idea before? This was just a quick sidebar allusion to me, right? That we will in each inherit kingdoms. Again, I don't know what that's going to look like, right? It's not that we get to live in Christ's kingdom. It says we will each inherit a kingdom. So take that for, for what you will and think about it and uh, talk about it over Sunday dinner a little bit today. But... Um, what a wonderful inheritance that we have for us, right? And it's based on our identity. We see that the king now continues to talk to those who are on the right, and he gives those who he calls blessed, he gives them credit, so to speak, for their deeds, right? This is not a reward because they worked hard, right? We've already received the inheritance because of who we are and the relationship we have with the Father. But he says to us, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you carried, or you came to me. So we think about these things, and really what these are is they are the fruits of a living faith that the blessed receive from the judge because of their faith. 
those who are credited with doing these things don't even realize it. They're dumbfounded. They say, wait, King, Jesus, when did we even see you and do these things? Right? So the, the deeds that we have as, as fruits of our faith, we may not even realize we're doing them all the time. But the response is telling for us and informative because the king tells them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. The phrase least of my brothers can also be translated as the least of my brethren, the least of my brothers and sisters, the least of my family. So really what Jesus is talking about is as we serve one another, particularly in the church, and we serve the least of these, it is the same as serving Christ directly. The activities of taking care of believers is viewed by Christ as taking care of Christ himself. And when we see those who have needs... We should be acting on them and help work to meet those needs. And in fact, the phrase serving the least of my brothers is interesting because it kind of shows, uh, it calls back to some of the earlier phrases Jesus talks about in terms of the least in the kingdom being the first. Jesus didn't talk about serving the important church leaders as being credit to the king. He He didn't say, you did a good job serving the bishop of Alexandria who became sort of famous, and some people know who he is, and we still read his writings today in church, right? He says the least of these, the poor anonymous believer in need, you serve them, is the same as serving me. So for us, it's often easy to read this list and wonder, do I do that? Have I done that enough? Have I helped the poor? How have I helped the poor? Have I clothed those in need or visited anyone in prison? And this is not to say we shouldn't do these things, because it's pretty clear we should. That is part of how Jesus wants us to live out our life of faith. But it's important to understand that that is not what earns us the separation to become a sheep, is how well we do that. Our faith is shown by showing love and good works to our neighbor, for those in need. Um, One of the analogies that I really thought of that I had a chance to see this fall, so Tobias, the soccer team at his school, uh, kind of late in the, or just before the season started, they lost a soccer coach, and the uh, one of the parents stepped up and helped helped coach the soccer team. This is not a soccer story, by the way, um, but his vocation, his full-time job, is as a pastor at a outreach in Minneapolis, and that outreach, very clearly, through Christ, like Christian vocation, is to serve the poor, to serve the homeless, feed the homeless, feed those in need. And he took in the team, and they actually, as a team, did some work with that mission agency and actually went on one Saturday and helped hand out clothes to a homeless encampment, and they all made breakfast casserole and brought uh, muffins and had this experience of really directly serving. And uh, Peter just has stuck out to me as I've got to know him better this year as somebody who really lives this life of service out very directly. And it was really fun because I went to to pick up the kids at the end of that that time and I got to hear a little bit of their sharing. So it was really fun to see how that idea of Christian service was starting to come through for these teenage boys. And that was, in my mind, such a great example of being able to serve those in need, right? And to serve those, many of whom were homeless believers that needed help and to provide them help. And it was serving Christ by serving them. So that's one of the ways we do that. But serving others is really how we serve God. 
This is also done by just living out our lives in our church community because by doing so, by being part of a living community of faith, we enable others to do some of the direct service that we may not otherwise be able to do ourselves due to just circumstances of life and being busy. Pastor Danny is in Thailand right now because we as a congregation have helped enable him to be able to serve our missionaries in a, in a dual role, right? So we, we have lots of ways that we're able to help provide service to others, both directly and indirectly, by living our lives of, of faith out um, together. But this calling and credit that we receive, again, we want to emphasize it's a result of our faith, not the cause of it. And in our text, we see now, we've talked about those who are on the right, those who are called righteous. They didn't even realize what they were doing. We have faith and we receive credit for the works of our faith, regardless of how small they are. We now turn to the contrast, right? We see those who are on the left, and they do not get any credit for the work they have done. At this point in the narrative, they recognize the king. They see that Jesus is the king. And they say, when did we do these things? Right? They now recognize him. When did we see you and not serve you? They did not serve the least of these. Which is an interesting contrast for us because I think as we think about our lives in the world, it's pretty easy to identify people who may not be believers who are great humanitarians, who do a lot of good work for those in need. And if they are not believers, if they don't have an identity in Christ, they're on the left, even though they did good work, right? The good work doesn't count without faith. So faith is really the important part for us. The amount of people you help doesn't turn a goat into a sheep, right? It's the identity. It's something that only Christ really can do for us. Only the work of Christ that is received by faith moves somebody from one side of the pen to the other. Without faith, all the good works done by a non-believer mean nothing in the context of eternal judgment. We don't have a God who is using scales to balance our good deeds and our sins. We have sin, and that sin needs to be covered. And when it is covered, we receive the righteousness of Christ. As a result of this lack of faith, of not being counted among the righteous, what is the result for those on the left? It's eternal separation from God. It's a terrible fate. After pronouncing this judgment, immediately the judge separates those, and those on the right go to eternal life. Those on the left move to eternal judgment, and our text ends. So as we consider our lives and what Jesus has been teaching his disciples in Matthew 24, 25, our text today, let this be a help for us to put our faith into action, to find ways to serve those in need, but more importantly, to be found ready, to be found among the righteous, and to put our faith in Jesus, his work, and trust in his promises. Let us be grateful for what he has done for us and live lives of service and thanks as a result. Amen.